Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Well, Father, as we come to you this morning, we come rejoicing, we come singing, we come celebrating that dawn has broken, that light has broken through the darkness, that death is defeated, and that Jesus reigns. And we thank you that we have this chance to celebrate. We thank you that we have a chance now to open your word together to be able to see what happened that first Easter morning. And to be able to begin to comprehend what you have for us. And so, Father, we plead with you that you would move by your spirit in this place to draw our hearts and affections to you. That you would open our eyes. That you would help us to see the glory that is in the empty tomb. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is Easter weekend. I had the chance to hang out with my kids, just me and the kids. Alyssa yesterday was hanging out with some girls all day long. It's kind of her, it's her birthday weekend. Alyssa's birthday was Good Friday. Um, not the most exciting day to have your own birthday. Um, a little bit of a different focus that evening. And so yesterday she had the whole day to hang out with friends and, and hang out in the city. And I took my kids and thought, you know what, let's have an adventure. And so our adventure was, I wanted to get out of town and thought, where can we go that's a reasonable driving radius? So we went down to Monticello. Um, Monticello is Jefferson's estate, and he's about two and a half hours away, and so you don't think about having three kids in the car for a two and a half hour drive each way um, until you get there. Um, and so what we did the entire time was listen to the soundtrack of Hamilton. Um, and because my kids love it and they know every word. And, and it was amazing to me that we get into Jefferson's house at Monticello. And of course, the thing that they seemed most interested in was that in the hall, in the grand hall in the entry room that you come into, he had a bust of who? Alexander Hamilton. And, you know, the docents there, first of all, they were dealing with massive crowds of people on a spring break weekend and weren't having any kind of, of, of like, real discussion with anybody. They were just trying to move people through. But, you know, the docent then also gave the kind of the miffed, you realize that he was Jefferson's greatest adversary. <laughs> My kids didn't care. They were wearing shirts that said, young, scrappy, and hungry. <laughs> they were not throwing away their shot. So we got to experience Monticello. We got to see the estate. It wasn't my first time there, but it was theirs. And I love how my kids were engaged, all three of them. And were in, you know, they're 11 and 10 and 7. And they were really interested in learning. And they were interested in seeing the estate. And, um, and as, as you encounter the person of Thomas Jefferson, you, you can't help but be confronted by and see his, his incredible intellect. That's what seems to be on display all the time, that you go to the Library of Congress just down the street and you see Jefferson's library, which was donated to, the library, to Congress by Jefferson, kind of. He also needed money, so he sold it to them. But he was a man who was well-read and widely read. He was a man who was brilliant with a quill in his hand. He was a man that loved gadgets and walking around his house, you can see his love for, for gadgetry. 
But one of the things that we hear about and that we see, or that, we, that is most prominent about Jefferson's work, yes, there's you know, the Declaration of Independence, there is, uh, there is the Statue for Religious Freedom in the Virginia, there's the founding of the University of Virginia. One of the things that's been fascinating for me is Jefferson's Bible. And you may remember a few years ago, it was on display here in the American History Museum, and Jefferson painstakingly took several Bibles and combined them down. He quite literally took an X-Acto knife to his New Testament and tried to come up with his version of the four Gospels, putting them together. And the Smithsonian Institute website it said of this Bible when it was displayed that it's the work of Jefferson's own hands and the product of his extraordinary mind. It was his revolutionary personal exercise to understand Jesus' moral teachings. See, but what Jefferson did in his Bible was he cut out everything that he personally could not find reasonable. So Jefferson's Bible was not looking at an external source of authority and morality. It was Jefferson saying that he was the one who was going to decide what would really stick. Now, Jefferson had a brilliant mind. That's, I mean, you can't argue against that. He was brilliant and eloquent with language. But he also had a really deeply conflicted and difficult morality. Because the same man who said all men are created equal owned slaves. And he struggled with that conflict. And even when you tour Monticello, it's clear that he did what he could to try to even keep the fact that he owned slaves out of view as he would have you know, ways to move wine from his cellars to the dining room through a dumb waiter so that someone wouldn't have to enter the room. And so his morality was conflicted. And I, I really believe that what, what Jefferson missed as he put together his version of the Gospels is he missed what is most critically important about Jesus. We would have no Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We would have no New Testament that was written if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without that, his moral teaching means nothing. It's essential to understand that his followers were proclaiming a historic event that he had been raised from death to life. His resurrection is not a mystical or unreasonable event. To the contrary. Thomas Arnold, the professor of modern history at Oxford, said that no one fact in the history of mankind is proved better and fuller by evidence of every sort than the fact that Christ died and rose from the dead. Now, over the past few weeks, we as a church have walked through the final hours of Jesus' life. And so we've taken about six weeks to do so together in this series that we've called Passion. And so we've seen this, this final night that Jesus shared a Passover meal with his disciples. They, they shared the Passover meal together as the last time they would eat a dinner together. And we've seen that Jesus went out into the garden and prayed in agony. We saw that he experienced betrayal by one of his best friends, and it was betrayal through a kiss. We've seen that, that Jesus was denied by his, one of his closest friends, Simon Peter, who was supposed to be the leader of this new movement, the rock on whom the church would be built. That he experienced accusation and was put on trial before religious leaders and political leaders and before crowds of people. We've seen his crucifixion, that he was killed, paraded through the city of Jerusalem and taken outside of the city to the hill, the place of the skull, and he was crucified killed on a cross alongside thieves. On Friday, we saw his death, and this morning, we come to his resurrection. 
Now, we've already done it a couple of times today, but there's a traditional Paschal greeting that has been, that has been passed down through the, in the church through centuries of Christianity. And so um, there will be a few times this morning that I'm going to ask you to call, to respond to the call that, that, is, that we've already heard, so let, we're going to try it together. That when we proclaim, He is risen... You guys got it. We don't even need practice. Um, this is, now, I've had people ask me, like, is this grammatically correct? Um, because that's the thing we should focus on on Easter Sunday. <laughs> Passed down through centuries. Has the church messed up the grammar here? Uh, just a little note on that. No, because this is, if you want to get technical, this is taken as a nominative adjectival sense. Jesus is the risen Lord. His resurrection is not simply past event. The proclamation of Christians for centuries is that Jesus is risen. That is the state that he exists in now, that he is alive at the right hand of the throne of God in the heavens. He is the risen Lord, and so we proclaim with confidence and boldness, he is risen. All right, so in Luke chapter 23, I'll read the end of chapter 23 where we left things on Friday, and then into chapter 24 as we see the dawn of this morning. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their, action, to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in, linen, in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever, had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them that told the, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping, and looking in, he saw linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so we begin this morning by seeing that the preparations had been made. There was a tomb in which Jesus was laid, that, that his body was placed. He was wrapped in linen, and, and he was buried in that place. Now, they couldn't tend to Jesus' body the way that they normally would. The, and, and in this time and place, the people closest to the deceased would use burial spices and ointments to pack the body as part of the burial process um, to deal with the decomposition within the tombs. And so the women who were following Jesus and who were still with Jesus, remember at this point, all of his disciples had abandoned him. 
Every one of them had walked away from him, except John. John is the one who we see that stuck with him through the crucifixion. And the rest had scattered. But these women had stayed with him, and they, they followed this man, Joseph, who was a member of the council, and, and, and he took Jesus' body and cared for it and put it in a tomb. The women saw the tomb that he was placed in, and, but they couldn't pack the body with the spices on Friday because sun, the sun was going down and Sabbath was beginning. And so they waited through Saturday, silently, in sorrow, waiting to go back so they could care for the body of their friend. And as they got back Sunday morning to the same place, to that tomb, they came and the stone was rolled away. They were confronted or, or addressed by two men who came in dazzling apparel and they, that, were, that said to them, why are, you, why are you looking for him here? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Don't you remember? He told you this. And so even as we begin Easter Sunday, as we look at God's word, there is a proclamation here that of a historic event that a tomb was empty. And the body of Jesus has never been found. It was never produced. The Roman authorities and the religious authorities in Jerusalem at the time could have ended everything and stopped everything simply by producing a body. You know, one of the things that gets brought up uh, surrounding Easter regularly is the question of, did the disciples lie? Was this just a ruse? Did they steal the body? Were they just trying to make the story? Is it a myth that they produced? Um, Charles Coulson, some of you know that name, um, because he was involved in the Watergate scandal. Right here in our town. Um, most of you aren't old enough to remember Watergate. Some of you are, um, but all of us have heard of it. Charles Coulson, in the wake of Watergate, years later, said this. He said, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me these 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And so this morning, I'm going to begin from a foundation of presuming this historic fact, again, that We've seen Thomas Arnold, professor of modern history at Oxford, has said nothing is better attested to in history than Christ's death and resurrection. But what we see in the responses of the people in Luke 24 is helpful to us to know why this is important for us. And so do you see, as it begins, they said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? It's for every one of us, this is a question that we need to be able to ask. Because every one of us looks for sources of life and hope and peace in places that we know can never bring it. And so as we, as we turn today and look for life where, there, where life can be found, we need to hear the words, he is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee. So there's a call here to remember. He's saying, do you remember the things that Jesus said? Do you remember the things he told you all the way back home? These women had followed him all the way from Galilee. 
They, they had come with him into the city. He's saying, do you remember the things he said? Do you remember the necessity of what was going to happen, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the, into the hands of sinful men, that he must be crucified, and that on the third day he must rise? And it was only at this moment that for the first time we see any of Jesus' followers go, huh, I remember that. Now this theme of necessity is a thread that runs all the way through Luke's gospel. Because we see this all over, that, that in, way back in chapter 2, Jesus as a child, when he's around 12 years old, is, is found in the temple. His parents went down into Jerusalem to celebrate a feast, and as they went home, they realized they lost Jesus. And so they went looking for him, and they found him in the temple, and he said, don't you realize that it's necessary for me to be in my father's house? We saw it in chapter four that he was healing people and casting out demons and people were bringing more people to be healed and, and, and Jesus had to draw back eventually and he said, listen, healing, this is good things. These are good things to do, but it's necessary for me to proclaim the good news of a kingdom. We saw it in chapter nine when he said, it, don't you understand that we are going to Jerusalem because it's necessary for the son of man to be rejected, to suffer, to die. He said it again in chapter 17, it is necessary for me to suffer and be rejected at the hands of men. It, it, we, he, he knew what his mission was. In, back in chapter 22, as we came to um, the, the, the last night that Jesus had with his disciples, he told them just before going out to pray and just before being betrayed and arrested, he said to them, I tell you, scripture must be fulfilled in me, that he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. You see, Jesus was saying it is necessary that all of the things that were written in the law and in the prophets are coming to their fruition. And he was even telling them it's happening now, tonight, and still his followers missed it. He was, he was quoting there from Isaiah chapter 53, and the prophet Isaiah had written more than 700 years before Christ lived. And we read in Isaiah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus was saying, don't you see that God's plan for the hope of the redemption and salvation of all humanity is coming down tonight? It's happening. That one is going to die, the innocent one, for us, in our place, for our sin, but death won't hold him. We see it is in next week, we'll, we'll go on to see, um, and we'll see Jesus appearing to his followers on the road to Emmaus. We'll take the next two Sundays after this Sunday to continue this story. And so if this is your first Sunday with us, um, please come back and hear how things continue. Next week, we see that Jesus says in verse 26 of chapter 24, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's saying, don't you understand this has been God's plan for his Messiah? 
And so Jesus, we'll see next week how all of scripture points ahead to him. But here, there's the simple call to these women who had come to the tomb to pack his body with spices as these, these angels say to them, don't you understand? Don't you remember? The son of man, pulling on language from Daniel chapter seven, the one who is the inter- intercessor, the intermediary between God and humanity, that don't you understand, don't you remember what he said, that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. See, this is so important for us because we need to understand that this wasn't a backup plan. This wasn't just a a small event. This was God himself taking on flesh and living a human existence, suffering, experiencing sorrow, even going to death itself. And it's only through that death that resurrection can come. And resurrection life is better than pre-resurrection life because it is untouchable by sin or death themselves. We see here, too, that there are eyewitnesses that experienced it. You notice that Luke names the women who were there. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, um, the, the son of James, or the mother of James, and other women who were there, too, but he names some of these women. Again, Luke's showing us this is real history that happened. These are real events. These are eyewitnesses that were there and experienced these things. And Luke wrote his gospel in the early 60s A.D., which means it was only 30 years after the events that are being described. Do you remember what happened 30 years ago? Those of you who are old enough. 30 years ago was 1987. For some of us, all of a sudden you felt really old. Because we remember 1987. I remember that that was the last year Walter Payton played football for the Chicago Bears. Um, That's how I mark things in my life. (laughs) What happened in Chicago sports this year? 2016 was a good one. <laughs> but it was, think about 1987. Michael Jackson released Bad 30 years ago. U2 released The Joshua Tree. And we know that because they're touring again this year to celebrate it. It was a real thing, it actually happened. The theaters, the big hits were Robocop and Beverly Hills Cop 2, a little obsession with cops. Um, the hot toy was a talking elf. <laughs> One of the big political news stories that was breaking in January of 1987 was the Iran-Contra affair. And in 1987, the President of the United States at the time, Ronald Reagan, stood and declared, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We know those events happened. For some of us, it doesn't seem like that long ago. And we know that they happened, not just because we have pictures and video and audio recordings and because you can go on Google right now and fact check me, but we know too because right now we could say, hey, there are people in this room who watched that live. There are people in this room who know that in 1987 there were, there were issues with which bombs were being dropped in which Middle Eastern countries the same way that there has been this week. And we know because there were eyewitnesses who were alive at the time, and it's just not that long ago. See, what Luke is doing here, the gospel writer is doing here, is he's naming these women and saying, go talk to them. They're here. These are the ones who were the first ones to Jesus' tomb. 
And it's shocking that, that the gospel writers would hold up women this way because in the culture and place at the time, this would have been a surprising eyewitness to list first. At the time, women's testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law. So the gospel writer is saying, this is the eyewitnesses. These are the ones who bear testimony. These are the ones who were there first. These women were there first. These are the women, too, who had been alongside Jesus throughout his entire ministry. In chapter 8, we see the importance that they had to the work that Jesus was doing. When we, we see that he's up in Galilee, and he's going through cities and villages, and he's proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And it says, and the 12 were with him, but also some women. Mary called Magdalene. He had healed her of seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Like These women had been with Jesus, and it goes on in Luke 8 to say that many other of these women, and the women were providing for Jesus' ministry out of their means. And so these women, while his disciples scattered, these women stuck with him to the end. They were with him as he was killed. They were with him as his body was laid in the tomb. And now it's Mary and Joanna and Mary that are together at the tomb first to encounter the reality of the resurrected Christ. And so what does this mean for us? Well, we see some things in them and also in Peter. You notice that the disciples still don't get it. The women came back, they tell the disciples, hey, the tomb was empty, he's, been, he's risen, these, we had these angels tell us, and they, they say, nah, we don't believe it. But Peter, Peter got up, he ran to the tomb, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, he, he went home marveling at what had happened. None of the other apostles believed at this point, but Peter did. Remember, he had been devastated. He denied Jesus, and Jesus had told him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, and he did that night. But as the rooster crowed, we also saw that, that the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered his words. How he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter went out and wept bitterly. I believe Peter's repentance and restoration came at that moment. We see his full restoration later on in a fishing, in, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, but, but I believe it was that moment that as the eyes of Jesus fell on him, not in condemnation, but in compassion and love and sorrow, that Peter realized what was happening. So Peter's the first one out the door to see if it's true. We read John's account, John, who was with Peter and always kind of likes to stick it to Peter a little bit in like a sibling rivalry kind of way, makes it clear that, well, it wasn't just Peter that ran. John was almost certainly the last gospel written. He says, I also ran, and um, actually the younger disciple got there first. <laughs> but these two ran. Peter here is highlighted by Luke because we see that even the one who had denied Christ, that maybe it's because of Peter's denial that he came to an understanding of his weakness and sorrow that he was actually able to respond to the beauty of the resurrection. The worst nightmare in all of human history had come to pass. The innocent one, the Messiah, the light of the world was slain by darkness. So could it be that that was undone? Could it be that, that light won in the end? And so this morning, I want to call you and invite you to look for yourself, to consider these things, like Peter, to not sit back as a skeptic, distant and removed, and like the other apostles here, say, ah, it's just an idle tale, I don't believe it. Don't get Jeffersonian when it comes to Jesus. 
and decide to cut out the pieces that you find reasonable without encountering the full weight of what has been written about him. Look for yourself. I know every one of you has come in here a little bit different this morning from a different place. Some of you are followers of Jesus Christ who have devoted your life to him, and for you, there is no bigger day to celebrate. This is the day that that every year as it comes, we are able to just let loose in joy and celebration and worship and want to say yes and amen, do it. Um, Even before the service, Phil was saying to the band, like, hey guys, we usually try to have a full range of emotions, but it's Easter Sunday, we're just letting loose. That's why our drummer's starting off every song. (laughs) Like that's, it's an explosion of joy as we celebrate that, that death is defeated and Jesus reigns. For some of you, though, you've come in here and you're struggling. You're, you're in a hard place. You're dealing with suffering that you have, that you, maybe you're not, you're not even being open with others about exactly what's going on in the depths of your soul. Mary can relate to that. See, while Peter and John went running to the tomb, we hear more in John chapter 20 that Mary came back with them as they came back, and she stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped and looked in, so she, she was still confused and heartbroken. And she saw two angels saying, woman, why are you weeping? And he said, they've taken my Lord. I don't know where, he's, where he is and where they've laid him. And having turned around, she turned, and she saw someone standing there. And she thought it was a gardener. And and this man standing there said, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him, and Aramaic said, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers. Say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. And Mary went back and boldly announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. If you've come here this morning and you are heartbroken and suffering, you need to hear that in Christ we see that God knows you and loves you, and he has gone into the darkest of places. And so it's in that darkness that you, will, you, you can find his presence and his voice, that you can know that he has gone before you, and he, he will, if you can come to Christ and turn toward him, that he knows your name and can call you out to himself and bring healing and hope. For some of you this morning, you're here because it seemed like the right thing to do. And I'm so glad that you came. It's Easter, it's a good Sunday to come to church and to be able to hear the good news proclaimed, to be uplifted. And so I want to invite you, if that's you, take a look for yourself. Don't leave here without seriously considering what's being laid out in front of you. Without seriously considering, what do we do with an empty tomb? You see, if Jesus wasn't raised from death to life, then we have nothing to proclaim. And frankly, we've wasted our time together this morning. But if he was, it changes everything. 
Like Peter, we can walk away marveling at what happened because, because as we see Peter marveling, he knows now we do not need to fear death if Jesus has been raised from the dead. Beekner has said, the worst thing is never the last thing for the Christian. So no matter what depth of sorrow and brokenness and suffering we experience, if Christ has been raised, then something better is coming. We can marvel at what Jesus has done and worship a risen Lord and proclaim the good news that he's been raised from death to life. We, we have hope and joy that Jesus will meet us in our sorrow and, and point ahead to life and hope in eternity and now. And today we celebrate too. We get to celebrate baptisms. Baptism is a graphic, physical portrayal of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what we celebrate in baptism is that as a person is placed under the water, they join Jesus in unity with his death, putting to death our own flesh, our own, our own sin, our desires that rebel and scream against God. But then as they're raised from the water, they're being raised from death to life, cleansed from sin, joining Jesus in unity with him in his resurrection so that we can have life now and forever in abundance and fullness as God has given us to live. It's a profession of faith in Jesus. So again, if you are a, are a follower of Christ, or if you are, are, have come to a point of belief in Jesus Christ, we invite you even to be baptized today. And finally, if any of you are continuing to struggle with doubt, and particularly if you've come here in sorrow and pain, I want to come back to that. Sometimes we feel a pressure in imminence that we need to make big decisions and big swings and find solutions and quick fixes. And I don't want you to hear that today. I want to invite you, like Mary, when we just read, she didn't find quick fixes, but she lingered at the empty tomb. She sat and waited, thinking about processing, dealing with the things that she just couldn't fully understand. You know, Peter and John ran there and then ran back, and we see their journey. Their journey was one, one path that God had for them, but Mary's was different. She watched it all. She hadn't skipped out on any of the events of Jesus' suffering. She hadn't skipped out on his burial, and she was feeling the weight of sorrow in a different way. But in lingering in thinking, in processing, in listening for God's voice, she heard the voice of Jesus calling to her, Mary. So my prayer today is that you would linger. Think about the things that you've heard and that you would hear Jesus' voice calling you by name. So church, what we celebrate today is rooted in history and reality. Again, don't, don't Jeffersonize this. We have to be confronted with it. And don't so personalize the events that we've heard about today in the empty tomb that we, that we deny history itself. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, this is, if this is really just some old tale, a myth, that can be chuckled away and chucked away, then, then there's no hope or transcendent purpose to be found in Jesus or in Christianity. But if he did, it changes everything. 
We don't need to fear death. We have the promise of joy in life. We can respond in awestruck worship of the risen Lord, proclaiming that Jesus is alive. Whether we have doubts and struggles, we can turn to worship him. We can seek Jesus who was crucified for us, who died in our place for our sins, and the one who is alive and conquered death because we can proclaim together and hear each other proclaim the good news that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, would you help us this morning? Would you meet us in this moment, and even as we continue to worship and to sing, would you stir our hearts, open our eyes? We thank you that we can have hope and peace and joy and life, and that it's only through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.